Vain worship is worship with no heart. Empty worship is worship with no heart. What makes worship worship? It is heart. From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, this is Crosswalk. When it comes to living out our life in worship, God is concerned with the state of our heart. Pastor Clay's on vacation this week, but we're not taking a break from our current series, Jesus, the Real Action Hero. This week, our worship pastor, John Spolino, is bringing the message. Vain worship is worship with no heart. And this week, we're going to have a heart checkup. Now here's Pastor John. If you can, open up your uh, Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Uh, Mark chapter 7, that's where we're going to be. We're continuing in our series in the book of Mark called uh, Jesus the Real Action Hero. And as I was studying this passage, uh, Clay asked me to cover verses 1 through 23. Uh, I just want to point out that I did that and the message was about two hours long. So uh, what I'm doing is I'm going to take all the information that's there. It has so many beautiful themes that we can use to enrich our life that God is speaking to us. And I am going to take uh, what I think is the main theme of verses 1 through 13. And so if we can get to 14 through 23, we will, but I doubt that's going to happen. So with that... Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to dive right in. Verse 1 says this. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. Verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever that I would have to help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or for his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as. As that, Let's pray before we go into today's message. Lord, please, Father, I need you to rightly speak through me. Father, you know that my words can come without error, but yours cannot. And so, Father, I ask that you would speak to us this morning on the richness and the beauty of what you consider to be true worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your sheet with you, you may see that the title of today's message is Vain Worship. Uh, vain Worship. You could, uh, you could say that it is empty worship. 
or fruitless worship or useless worship. Those are all the same things for vain worship. And the main point of our text this morning is that vain worship is worship with no heart. That vain worship is worship with no heart. Empty worship is worship with no heart. What makes worship worship? It is heart. And so Jesus is going to be attacking these Pharisees because the Pharisees are going to come up to him and say, why are you breaking the tradition of the elders? Why are you eating something without washing your hands? And Jesus is going to say, you do that with no heart. Your worship is useless to me. And so this morning, let us take this passage and we're going to go verse by verse and we're just going to kind of unpack what's happening here this morning. So let's look at verses uh, 1 through 5. What we see here is that the Pharisees and the scribes are gathering around Jesus. They've, they've come to Jerusalem and they see that the disciples are eating bread without uh, washing their hands. And the writer Mark gives us a commentary on this and as why that's weird. And so in verse 3 he says, For all the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Well, there's a lot going on there. Like first, who's the Pharisees and who's the scribes? And what is this tradition of the elders? Well, the Pharisees are these religious people who are devoted to following the law. Not the law of God, but the law of the elders. Many of these Pharisees were scribes. These scribes were the ones who read the text, who interpreted the text, who uh, wrote books on the text and talked about the text. They preached. Uh, Basically, these scribes were uh, full-time vocational ministers of Judaism. And so these are these scribes. And a long, long time ago, if you remember in Exodus, God gives Moses this commandment, the Ten Commandments on how how you should live your life. And in Judaism, they believe that also God gave them a oral law, the oral Torah. And over time, they had to write down this Torah because they didn't want to get it wrong. This is called the Mishnah, okay, the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is this oral tradition that they received from their elders. But the Mishnah was confusing. So they had some of these scribes write a commentary on the Mishnah called the Gemara. I know this is a lot, more than you want to know. But you had the Mishnah and the Gemara, and they put them together, and that created the Talmud. And so this Talmud is the very thing that a lot of the Jewish people believe as the authoritative scripture. And so, looking back at this passage, what are the Pharisees and the scribes angry at? They're angry at the disciples for breaking the tradition of the elders, the things that they just have passed down that they believe Uh, that their elders, their scribes have passed down from generation to generation. Why is this a problem? Anybody? No one knows why it's a problem? Okay, I'll tell you. It's a problem because what they've done is they've taken their own word and they have elevated it to God's word. And one characteristic of a heart that is far from God in worship and living out your life in worship is a heart that elevates their own words, their own beliefs, what they want to do, and they elevate it to God's word. Now, we don't know exactly what this, uh, what hand washing was. It wasn't that they just didn't wash their hands. Like many of you are like, of course they should get angry if they didn't wash their hands. I mean, that's like the first thing in, you teach your kids is wash your hands before you eat. 
But it was much more than this. As I said, it was the tradition of the elders. It was how you washed your hands. It was like this, this process. And we don't know what it was. We didn't know what it looked like. But I can, I can envision, uh, envision with me, there's this water basin and all these elders and scribes are gathering around and they are, they are arguing. And how should you wash your hands right? And finally, one man stands up. He says, I got it. This is what we have to do. First, you put your right hand in. Then you take your right hand out. You put your right hand in. You got to shake it all about, right? You got to do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around. And that's what it's all about, right? That is essentially what these Jewish officials were doing. They were teaching their people that you have to do the hokey pokey before you eat. And what is worse is that if you want to honor God, if you want to live your life to please God, what God desires most from your life is to do the hokey pokey. And that's what these Jewish people were saying. I try to think of another way to illustrate this. Um, Amber and I are getting married in 20 days, and so it is, it is coming fast. And, uh, and two, two weeks ago, I moved into our apartment that she'll be moving in after we get married. And uh, I don't know what the best way to say this is, but she's come over to make it look less like a man lives there. Okay, so, um, you know, Star Wars poster goes down, burlap curtains go up, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the funny things we were talking about is we both went to go grab things to put on the bookshelf. And so I grab books and she grabs candles and picture frames. And, uh, you know, just to guess the things you learn. Well, I've been really concerned about utilities. The first week I lived there, I was really concerned about wasting money. Every place that I lived in, it was flat, flat rate. It was included. When I lived with my parents growing up, it was awesome. Flat rent, didn't have to pay for utilities. But now I have to pay for utilities. And so um, I believe that there is a good word in Scripture saying that we should be good stewards and not waste our money, uh, not waste energy and water. But I went a little overboard. And so what I did was, it may not seem overboard at first, but I'll get there. At first, what I did was I unplugged all the appliances. That's a really good way to save money. Unplug your appliances. But I don't know if you've ever experienced um, when your alarm clock, like when the power goes out and you have to reset your alarm clock every time and how annoying that is. Well, I do that every single time I enter the house because I need a clock. So I walk in, go over to the alarm clock, plug it in, set it. When I leave, unplug it every single time. I know. The next thing, the next thing I did was I, I didn't know this was contrary to saving money, but I turned the air off every time I left and then I turned it back on every time I entered. And so you're not supposed to do that. Um, but that's what I did. So I turned it off and on, off and on, off and on. Then finally, and this is probably the, the craziest thing I did, was I played a song while I was in the shower. It was a three minute, three and a half minute song. And when the song was done, my shower was done. Okay, so it didn't matter if I had soap in my hair. It didn't matter. It was, it was over. Now, you might say like, you know, that's a little silly. That's not crazy. But what if I said this? What if I said, Amber, in order for you to marry me in 20 days, you have to Unplug all the appliances when you leave. You have to turn off the air. And this might be some of the deal breaker. You have to take showers that last less than three minutes. You would say, I am ridiculous and I am crazy. But what if I said then, Amber, as the spiritual leader of this family, I am telling you that this is what pleases God. This is how you make God happy. This is what God looks for. You would think I was crazy. And you know that that is not what God's word says. But the sad truth is, 
that for generations and generations and generations of Jewish people, they have been fed and fed and fed this idea that what you do following these oral traditions of man, that's what pleases God. And so for generations, they uh, participated, in, participated in useless, fruitless, empty worship. And so now we see Jesus, and they're crowding around him, and they ask him, why don't they do what the tradition says? And if you're a Jew, now you're leaning in, okay? You're, you're waiting to see what Jesus is about to say. What, why is he not doing this? Why is he not washing his hands? And then Jesus says in verse 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He is referencing a passage in Isaiah. He tells us, this is what Isaiah says. And instantly, all the Jews that were there, the Pharisees, the scribes, all the people who knew what he was drawing their attention to. That he was referencing a time in Israel's history where they had rebelled so far away from God that Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, only knows how to describe it as a prostitute who prostitutes itself out to other gods and then turns around and offers that same service to Yahweh, to the one true God. That's how far. And Jeremiah is even going to push it further. Jeremiah is going to, at the end of his book, is going to say that worshiping the wrong God is just as bad as worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. And so Jesus is focusing on this passage, and we have to look at it to get the full understanding. In Isaiah 29, 13 through, I believe it's 13 through 16, it says this. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me, their fear for me, their respect for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed." Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, well, who sees us or who knows us? God says, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is form say to him who formed it? He has no understanding. And Jesus is going to point to this passage and say, how dare you say that you love me, offer me lip service, and yet you say, you know, the Bible is pretty irrelevant on this issue. I think I might know better. God doesn't really know what he's talking about. Or, you know, what's done in my private life is my private life. You know, God can have some of these areas in my life, but, you know, there's some things. I mean, does he really see what I'm doing? And what Jesus is going to point out to us this morning is that a heart that is far from him is a heart that honors him with your lips, but then elevates what you want to do, how you want to live your life, what you believe, what best way you think you can live. All that is what you elevate and say, that's how I want to live my life and not by God's word. And luckily, 
And praise the Lord that he gives us specific examples on how we have done that. And there's two ways that we have elevated our word to God's word. The first we see in eight, or the, both of them we see in eight and nine. The first is neglecting the commandment of God. And the second is laying aside the commandment of God. The first is in verse eight, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. Now, essentially, these two are two sides of the same coin. One deals with just neglect. I hear it all the time. Well, you know, I mean to get around to God's word. And you'd be surprised how many things in our life God would consider sin, God would consider unholy, and yet we don't know that because we don't know his word. We neglect it. We think that we'll sometimes get around to it. Uh, We think that, you know, it's good for some areas of our life, but you know what? If I don't know it, then how can God accuse me of anything? And so the first part, he's saying, the first thing you do is you neglect God's word. You just forget about it. You don't think about it. You say that you love me and you honor me with your lips, and yet throughout the week, you don't even care to open up my word and to read what I have to say. The second thing he says is that you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, this idea is specifically trying to get you to go around God's word. You believe that you uh, don't like a part of Scripture. Maybe it's, uh, you want, maybe it's you don't really like the roles of men and women in Scripture. And so you think, well, you know, that's really not that important. And so you change Scripture and say, you know what? My husband doesn't need to be the spiritual leader of our household. And yet God's very clear in Scripture that the husband should take that role. It might be something else. It might be a sin that you really enjoy and really love, and you think, well, the Scripture's a little outdated here. You know, God wrote at a different time, and so it's not really relevant for today. And so we side skirt and try to get around it. But notice what they do here. They don't even just lay aside the commandment, but they do it in order to keep their tradition. It's for a purpose. And he gives us an illustration that is more profound than it may seem. In verse 10, it says, For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. Whatever I have that would help, or excuse me, honor your father and mother. For Moses said, uh, He who speaks evil of uh, father or mother is to be put to death. Now, some of you parents in here are like, Yeah, that'd be awesome. We, we should enact capital punishment for our kids rebelling against us. That's not the point he's trying to make. He says, but you say, if a mother says to his fa- uh, if a son says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin that is given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, you invalidate the word of God. This idea of honoring your father and mother is a really good one. As you remember, we talked about the Ten Commandments. God gave us the Ten Commandments, and that is one of the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting. I think it's interesting that he's telling them not to believe the oral tradition that they believe was passed down at the Ten Commandments and then gives an illustration using the Ten Commandments that his word is the word. So I thought that was interesting. But this idea of honoring your father and mother, it's much more than respecting them. It's just much more than listening to what they say. Some of you uh, students might say, well, what if it's against God's word? Well, then you're off the hook. You don't have to do anything against God's word. But cleaning your room... It's not against God's word, so you should do it. Um, and so it's much more than this idea of just listening to your parents. It's the idea of supporting your parents. 
There is a time in life, and many of you may have experienced this, where your parents can no longer take care of themselves. They can no longer support themselves. And so, like my parents have done on many occasions, they help my grandparents, and they've uh, had them stay with them at moments in their life, and they, they support them. They, they help them through. And there's a time where, uh, in the Jewish law, that that would happen. And the law was that if you were a son, you had to go to your parents at that time and say, come live with me. Let me support you. Let me take care of you. Let me show the love that you've been giving me all these years back to you. But in the oral tradition, there is this thing called Corbin, meaning given to God. And so essentially the son would go to his parents and say, I would love to help you right now, but I... I've, I've pledged all my money to God. And isn't that a better way for you, me to use my money, to pledge it to God? And so, according to oral tradition, you no longer had to take care of your parents. But here's the problem. When you pledged Corbin, pledge your money to, or pledge, uh, pledge your money to God and not to your parents, you didn't have to set aside some for God. You can manage it how you want. You can use it how you want. You can even break Corbin and give it to somebody else. You didn't have to uh, decide that you, you at some point don't want to give it anymore. You can just say, I don't want it. I don't, I don't want to pledge it anymore. And you didn't have to have a reason, it, nothing. It was just Corbin. You give it to God. And one Jewish commentator says that it wasn't unlike Jews to say Corbin over everything. Because then they didn't have to give anything away. And so they were concerned about their money. They were concerned about their own life. They didn't want to help their parents. And so they used this rule called Corbin to get out of it. And here's the problem with Corbin. Day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday, people come into churches all over this world and say, Corbin, my life is given to God. I am pledging myself to God. And yet, they manage their life how they want. They do what they want. They spend their resources like they want. And they don't listen to God's word. But instead, they just say, well, I'm pledging my life to God and I'll get to it someday. I'll get to obeying God's commands someday. And as I was thinking about this idea of how we have pledge our lives to God, but not have followed through with obeying God's word. I came up with two illustrations. They're not the only ones, but they're two illustrations that I have seen in at least the, the church in America where we have done this. The first is the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way to get to the Father, and there is no one but him. And yet, according to a lot of studies, a lot of Christians don't believe that. They pledge that they belong to God, and yet they say, well, Jesus is just one way to get to heaven. He is one of the good religious men. And what they do is they find verses in the Bible that talk about God's love. That God is love. That's his primary characteristic. So if he is love, then how can he send anyone to hell? And they forget the fact that we are not lost in our sin because we didn't love God enough. We're lost in our sins because we're not perfect. We are unholy. And they forget that God is holy. And that that's his 
primary characteristic. He is set apart. He is perfect. perfect. And so he loves perfectly, but he also judges perfectly. And he tells us in his perfect wisdom that if your heart is far from me, if you believe that you have, if you believe in what you think is best and you disregard my word, then the worship that you bring me, the pledge that you bring, bring me, the Corbin that you bring me is useless, it's empty, it's fruitless, and I do not want it. But I've also seen it in another way. This way is probably more subtle and has been more invasive in our churches today. And it's the idea that my relationship with Christ is for me. That I have been saved from my sins to have this personal relationship, individual relationship with God. And while that is true on one aspect, that idea shows two misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding is the misunderstanding of salvation. And the second is the role of the church in your life. The first misunderstanding of salvation is that you are only saved from your sin. And that's true. You are. But it's not the only thing. And so we're saved from our sin. We are redeemed by God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we can have a relationship with him because we were sinners. But now Jesus sees us as holy. We are no longer under the wrath of God, which Christ has satisfied because why he has made us holy. Obviously, we still sin and there is sanctification. There is growing in holiness in our life. But God sees us. As holy. So we're saved from our sins, definitely. But we're also saved for God. He calls us his children. Ephesians 5 makes it clear. We are adopted as his sons and his daughters. He calls us to be his. And if there is any greater privilege than knowing God as our Redeemer, it's knowing God as our Father. Because he calls us his children. We have that. We have that link that only a parent has to his child. But he's not only saved us for himself, but he saved us for a mission. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Christ. That is our mission, to live out a life that glorifies Christ, that shows Christ. And think about this. Christ is the representation of God's love to us. As believers, we see Christ as our beautiful ambassador from God. But to our unbelieving friends, to our lost neighbors, to our lost families, we are that representation of God's love. And it's not that they look at us, but we are the first step that they see and know. He loves Jesus. He exemplifies God's love. So it's our job when they see us to point them to the greater ambassador. We are ambassadors of the greatest ambassador. And that is our mission, to live out a life glorifying God, showing people the love of Christ and pointing them to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate picture of the love of God, and that is his sacrifice for us. And lastly, we were saved for a family. We were saved for a family. Throughout all of Scripture, intrinsic to this idea of being adopted as sons and daughters is now that whoever puts their faith in Christ is now an adopted brother and an adopted sister. We belong to a family. And yet many people say, well, I don't need the church. I can just worship God on my own at my house. 
And while in one aspect, I guess that is true, but you're missing out on the beauty that God has put into the body of Christ. And this point leads to the second point. We have a misunderstanding of the role of the church, and more importantly, the role of your, your role in the church. For the believer, the church is not an option. It is the very place that you outpour yourself. And so the church is the place where you not only get fed into, you not only grow, but you outpour your gifts, you serve your time, you love on people, you invest. And it's not just coming to church on a Sunday, it's investing in a smaller group of people who you are accountable to, who you grow together with. That when you have an issue in your marriage, they are the first people who come aside alongside of you and love on you, encourage you. When you need some time away from your kids, those are the people that say, here, why don't they come over and stay over at our our house so you can have a night alone as long as you return the favor, right? But these are the people that you grow with, that you share with. And yet most people are fine with coming on Sunday morning, not getting involved in a group of believers that will encourage them, that will support them, that will lift them up. And they say, well, I love God, but it's just not necessary. But God's word says it's necessary. Or they'll say to me, I don't don't need to use my gifts right now. You know, I don't really have many gifts to offer the church. And yet the Bible is very clear that God has specifically given us Gifts to use. And I'm going to put a shameless plug in. We have a need. And it doesn't take great artistic skill or a great gift. It's working the video camera. And you get to sit in the back. Okay? So some of you are like, that's awesome. I get to serve and sit in the back. But those types of things, things in our church, we have a ton of opportunities for you to serve. And some of you might be saying, you know, I've been meaning to, to maybe serve somewhere. I just didn't know where. Well, come find us. We have places for you to serve, and we have places for you to use the gifts that God has given you. You may think you have a gift. It could be to do anything. Well, come. Let us find out if that is what God has gifted you with, and let us use that to leverage for his kingdom. But sadly, many people come into church. They hold up their banner of Corbin. They pledge their life to God, but then... They don't follow through with their actions. Now, some of you may be thinking, if God's focused on the heart, then why is he so focused on what I'm doing with the actions? Making sure that I'm living up to what he has commanded. And here's why. While God is concerned with your heart, there is an intrinsic root and a fruit connection. That what goes on in your heart will come out in what you do how you act, what you say, what you think. And so what you fear the most, what you desire the most, what you love the most is going to rule your heart. This is the idea of inescapable influence, that whatever has captured your heart is going to affect your life. And so if you look at your fruit and you see it's not lining up with Scripture, It's not because you're just doing things contrary to God's scripture. It's because your heart is not focused on God. And so that's the connection there. That's why God is so concerned 
with these people because they're praising God, but they're elevating their own word, what they want to do, what they want to say, what they want to believe, but yet they are still honoring their life to God. And God says that is absolutely worthless. I want to draw your attention to another passage of Scripture. As you remember, as I said, Jeremiah quotes, uh, says that the people of Israel are like prostitutes who prostitute themselves out. That is how far they have gone. And so these Jewish people are are remembering this reference. They're, They're all sitting around Jesus and they hear Jesus say, you have empty worship that means nothing to me. You have said Corbin, but you have not believed in what I have commanded, what I have said, and I'm concerned about your heart. And so now you may think like these Jewish people think, well, then what can I do? Imagine you're a Jew for centuries. This is what you've been told to do. But now that's been taken away. So what should I do? How do I please God? How do I have a heart that's focused on him? And Ezekiel 36, one of my favorite passages, it says this to these Jewish people who were in rebellion against God. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I or that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So listen, he doesn't take them off the hook. He tells them, you profane my name. You have taken my name in vain. 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. So he's really angry. He said that twice, okay? He's super angry. But look at this. Then the, then the nations will know that I, am the, Lord, uh, that I uh, am the Lord, declares the Lord, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances or what I have commanded You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. And so this Jewish people in rebellion against him in Ezekiel, God tells them, I will cleanse you. I will save you. I will redeem you. And for the whole entire Old Testament, they're waiting. They are waiting for the one. The one who will finally reverse the curse of sin that we know in Genesis 3. They're waiting for the one who will finally bring about God's spirit to rest on his people. They are waiting for the one who will bring the water to cleanse them. And they wait. And in John, it's clear that the world did not know him. His own rejected him. That while they had the one that is talked about in Ezekiel, they said, nah, my way's better. And so you may be saying, well, how then can I have this new heart? Well, you can have it like any one of these Pharisees or scribes could have had it. By believing that Jesus 
is the one true Messiah, the long-awaited Redeemer, Redeemer and Savior. He is the one that by his blood we are cleansed from our sin. It is the one who's, who makes us in right standing before God so that now we do not have to be under the penalty of our sin. That while we take God's name in vain in worship, we can, by the Spirit of Christ, worship him fully. Because there are going to be times in our life where we take his name in worship. I mean, we take his name in vain in worship. And to be honest with you, we probably take his name in, in vain in worship more times in the church than we do in media and in movies and in songs. But what Jesus tells us is that he has the power to change all that. He has the power to give us a new heart. He is the one that brings us the Spirit. He tells us he's brought, when he leaves, another counselor is coming. And that Spirit lives inside of us if we have accepted the gracious gift of God. And God says, you don't have to take my name in vain any longer. You don't have to worship me from afar. Your heart can be so close with mine that we can feel both of them beating if you trust in me. And that heart is going to be one that does my commandments, that does what I say. And that will be the evidence that you are walking step by step and side by side with the one true God. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.